This episode is brought to you by VinSmart. Need help with your recall campaigns? DMVs, government agencies, fleet owners can learn more by visiting vinsmart.com slash businesses or call 1-888-950-9550. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AmbaCast, everyone. This week, uh, we are revisiting a hot topic and some new developments in that hot topic, particularly as it relates to mobile driver's licenses. More specifically, the now-published international standard for mobile driver's license. And to talk to me about this standard is the AMVA Director of Identity Management, Mike McCaskill, and AMVA's Business Solutions Architect and all-around MDL guru, Lafi Jordan. Uh, Lafi, Mike, welcome back to the AMVAcast. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Good to be here. Great. Uh, You've both been on previous episodes for different topics, uh, but today we're going to revisit some of the latest developments in, uh, in MDL, in the MDL world. More specifically, the international standard, long-awaited, now available. Um, But I think we we throw around these words quite a bit, international standard, ISO, ISO. But I think it might be good to pause and really explain to our listeners what, what we're talking about. People sort of generically recognize the concept of an international standard. But I'm not sure that everyone really understands the organization that oversees this effort and what it takes to get a standard finalized. Uh, Luffy, why don't you tell us a little bit when we refer to the ISO standard, what is ISO? ISO is the International Organization for Standardization. Um, They have, together with the International Electrotechnical Commission, created a a joint working group or, or a joint Uh, committee uh, called JTC1. Um, Inside of JTC1, there are many subcommittees. One of those subcommittees deal with identity. And inside that, there's a working group called Working Group 10 that specifically looks at driver licenses. And so this group, representative of many participating countries all over the world has been working on this particular standard. So it's a it's really an international process that draws experts in a particular field um, to come together and define a standard in answer to needs from industry or not necessarily industry, in answer to needs from stakeholders. And in this case, one of the things that ISO provides is the opportunity for very diverse stakeholders to be around the table and have that conversation, correct? Exactly. Um, In this case, the stakeholders are experts, um, both from industry and from non-governmental organizations and from governments issuing authorities themselves. So the whole range of stakeholders have been participating in the standard for a mobile driver's license. Now, Mike, Luffy phrased it as a way of saying for a standard to meet a need. As it relates to MDL, we know there's a lot of folks working on developing technologies, platforms, 
uh, uses for it. What what is the need that the MDL standard is answering? Quite frankly, it's interoperability. Uh, right now, with a physical card, the jurisdictions know what each jurisdiction's card looks like. So acceptance of that card across jurisdictional lines is pretty simple. And we've been doing this for years. And they look at the picture and they look at the security features on the physical card and they're able to consume it and do whatever they need to for that transaction. What the ISO standard provides uh, the issuing authorities in general is interoperability. The way that a jurisdiction A's license can be consumed in jurisdiction B's transaction process. Um, whether it be across state lines and in, in, uh, any number of places that you might use your driver license today, like um, age-restricted uh, venues or even age-restricted products. So interoperability is the big thing. We needed it for interoperability, and they have provided that standard for interoperability. You explain that in comparison to the physical card. And we know there are standards for the physical card, and we know that different jurisdictions, both in North America and around the world, may or may not follow the international standard for a driver's license to a T. You know, there are elements of it they follow, there are some they don't. And yet we've had successful interoperability because it's recognized and accepted. That's a little bit different as we now transition to MDL in terms of the ability to pick and choose from the standard in order to ensure interoperability. Can one of you explain why that is going to be a little bit different with MDL than maybe it's been with the physical credential? Um, it's, as you said, in the case of the physical card, you read it. I mean, it's, it's a visual consumption of the physical driver's license. And even if things are not exactly the same between driver's licenses, I can still read them. I can still evaluate the security features. In the case of an MDL, because the MDL is not meant for visual authentication, but for cryptographic authentication, you can't pick and choose. You have to follow the minimum standard because it's essentially sort of like a, by analogy, a computer system. If you, if two computer systems want to talk to each other, if you don't follow exactly the same set of rules, you're not going to understand each other. And so it's, it's not sort of pick and choose. It's yes, these are the minimum standard to, for an MDL device to talk to an MDL reader. If everyone doesn't follow exactly the same minimum standard, and yes, there are extensions to that, but if you don't follow the same minimum standard, you're not going to be able to talk to each other and you won't have interoperability at all. I mean, it's, it's either, yes, I can read and authenticate it, or no, I can't. There's nothing in between like there might be in the case of a physical card. Another similarity there to me seems to be that on the physical card, it's the producer of the card that really has to worry about how much they're meeting or not meeting of the standard, because then, like you say, the person who's accepting it is doing a visual inspection. So they may or may not need to know much about the standard of a physical card. Here, because of that interaction, the standard not only has to be known and understood and operationalized by the issuing authority, the traditional driver's license administration, but those that are going to consume it has to equally understand the standard and what it means. Mike, talk a little bit about that relationship between what we refer to as issuing authorities and relying parties. Sure. So the relying party groups out there 
uh, all along have had the reason to consume a physical credential. And that has been through visual, just as Lafayette just mentioned. However, I mean, the relying parties have to be more in tune with what the issuing authority is doing, how the issuing authority is using the standard to produce a mobile driver license to a, to a mobile device. And then the reader groups, which is the relying parties, have to provide and build a reader solution to consume that. And in that consumption, they have to know what the public key is that was used by the issuing authority so that they can use the, the, the private key to, de, to decrypt the data. Cryptography is what Laffey was talking about. So the, the relationship between the issuing authorities and the relying parties have just become more close. They're more closely related now because they have to both understand each other and what they're doing and the way they come together is through the standard. And another way they come together is through the digital trust service that Enva is working on standing up now so that the relying parties can get provided the public keys from the issuing authorities in a central location and know that those keys have been placed into the digital trust service through a process by which they onboarded the issuing authority, ensured that they did the proper uh, maintenance and purchasing of those keys and that those keys can be trusted and now they can decrypt the data coming across from the MDL and the reader can now trust that that person was issued that MDL that NBL was issued by an issuing authority, and that that is that person. So the, the relying party issuing authority relationship now is much, much more closely related. And so a key element there is everyone needs to sort of buy in, endorse, and follow the standard, which makes me want to ask the, the origin story of, of a standard, right? Luffy mentioned kind of the structure of it and how it comes together. Uh, but it's not just a bunch of folks sitting in a room and deciding, I like this, I like that. Uh, you actually kind of test out some of these concepts and see what works. Talk to us about a little how that has played out leading up to this finalization of the standard. Yes. Um, in the case of the MDL standard specifically, um, we very early on realized that this is no ordinary standard. Um, you have a very complex um challenge and there's no comparable challenge that we knew of at the time that had been solved already. So that required us to validate the concepts as we moved along. And we did that by way of several test events. As soon as we had something that we thought, you know, this is fairly stable, then we would go out and set up a test event where vendors or companies would come and say, I want to build an MDL. They would build the MDL according to the standard. Other companies would come and say, I want to build a reader according to the standard. Other companies would come and say, I want to build a test platform against what we have. And so we would test as we went along. And initially, the test events were focused just on core functionality. And as time went by, the test events expanded until we covered all the functionality in the standard. There are, in fact, um, two regional test events coming up um, very shortly uh, to address this. So those test events coming up will continue to refine the standard. It's always been finalized. How does that, how does that work now that the standard is out there and available to use? How do the additional test events build upon it Will there be edits? What, what should folks expect? The test events coming up um, 
is not intended to necessarily change what we have in the standards. Um, it is meant as a final demonstration of what we have in the standards. So if, if you would, it's more like marketing than it is validation of the standard. We've already done the validation. We're pretty confident that it works the way it's supposed to work. I think it's what the kids call show and tell in elementary school. Yes, that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Which is a good thing. It's a good thing. I think that's really important, with, especially with MDLs, where so much of it has been such an academic conversation, to actually see it in action and to see two devices talk to each other following that, that standard, I think is going to really be a critical step in implementation. The 18013 standard, which is an MDL standard, is also it's a data model along with a, a provisioning, or a, not a provisioning process, but a uh, process by which that data can be transmitted cryptographically. So it can't, it's not just an MDL. It can also be used for other uh, digital documents called mobile documents. Uh, so you'll also uh, be able to prov prove that, that part of this process in these test events, uh, one of which is registrations, vehicle registrations. It can be used hmm. for that kind of uh, opportunity. So. Uh, yes, we're focusing on MDL, and it's, it was built for MDL, but it's also built to expand into other mobile document types as needed by industry and other relying parties that would need to use those documents. One of the other differences, again, when you compare it to the history that we all know with the physical card that, that might be important to explore is some of the physical card standard includes the physical appearance. The MDL standard uh, the scope is a little bit different in that the following the standard doesn't necessarily mean all MDLs are going to quote unquote look alike. I explain that scope difference and what the standard really uh, covers and you know the scope of it as opposed to where we might see variations and in innovation around the MDL. So the MDL standard um primarily and at its heart is an interface specification. It defines the language between an MDL and an MDL reader. What does the request look like? What does the response look like? What are the data elements that can be requested that have to be uh, shared um, and so on? The standard does not address the presentation of information on either side. So it does not tell an issuing authority how they should present data in an app or a reader how data that got read should be shown or presented to a, a human consumer of the, the information. Those areas are left to issuing authorities and vendors to innovate on. For example, for an issuing authority, they may want to... Um, enable the holders to uh, have additional information on a particular transaction, to store information on what happened in a particular transaction. So what the app does, how the app protects the information um, is not addressed by the standard, which sort of is a, an opportunity to put in a plug for the AMVA MDL implementation guidelines, which do sort of go into that area. We realize that there is a need, especially from a privacy perspective, for apps to have certain features. For example, selective data release, um, data 
to ensure that there are sufficient data minimization. And so the ANVA-MDL guidelines pick up where the ISO standard stopped, so to speak, and add things that issuing authorities can add to their apps and to their issuing processes to help ensure, for example, that you have a privacy-preserving implementation. So dumb this down for me just a little bit. If I am a, uh, an issuing authority or a relying party and I want to get into this MDL game, am I good to go with the ISO standard? Do I need the AMVA implementation guidelines? Do I need both? How, how do I tackle this operationally and what, what are the tools I need to move forward? So if you have the, the ISO standard, you can build an interoperable solution. You can build a MDL device that can be read by any MDL reader that was built according to the ISO standard. On top of that, in North America, we have a need for additional data elements, for example, related to Real ID, or we have a way of presenting driving privileges um, in addition to what is provided in the ISO standard. So for regional use, and the ISO standard specifically allows for regional use, we expand the things that we can do. We have to standardize those things somewhere. So on a regional basis, people who build readers know what to build into their readers. And so the MVMDL guidelines specify those domestic things. That's one of the things that the MVMDL guidelines does. So if you want to have just a reader that can read anything, it's going to work, but it's not going to be able to leverage the things that we've additionally identified in North America to enrich the MDL functionality. On top of that, um, again, the interface specification in 1813 means you can build something that works. What we add in the AMVA MDL guidelines are things you can do to enhance the privacy properties of your solution. Now, Mike, when Luffy was explaining a lot of this, he keeps going back to the idea of the uh, credential and the reader which would suggest that there's the focus on a in-person interaction. Even though it's device to device, I'm standing there with one device and someone is standing there with a, another device. But there's also been lots of conversation about how to use this when I'm not standing in front of you with a device and a reader, but I might be you know, making a online internet interaction and want to use a MDL to verify my, my identity. Does the standard cover that piece? So the standard is only currently for um, in-person transactions. When you're standing in together, the reader and the MDL are together. The standard is now in their, what they're calling their day two solution, where they're looking at the internet of this, of an MDL, and using an MDL across the internet. There's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, there are some things that have to be really worked through with privacy and security to ensure that the online transaction is you get just the data you need for the transaction. And it's also just as secure as if you're standing uh, face to face and you're doing an in-person transaction where you're getting your data from the device and not using your data across the Internet. So that's a day two solution that they're working on that ISO WG10 is working on now. 
And as we make progress in that working group uh, over the next uh, several months, we will be making progress to, to get to the point where we can use the MDL across the internet in a secure and reliable process. Now, Mike, you started talk earlier about public keys, and one of you referred to the project that uh, we at Anvar are taking on, which is building a uh, minimally viable version of a digital trust service. Uh, explain to our listeners who maybe haven't been as close to this conversation exactly what we are we are starting to build. So we're looking at building a. It's two parts to this. You have a a steering committee slash governance piece where um, we will have a group we stand up that will be looking at governance of the system and the onboarding of issuing authorities to that system and how that process works. What does an issuing authority have to, what minimum requirements do they have to meet to, in, to assure that their public key can be loaded into the minimal viable product, the DTS, uh, and also some other things within that steering committee regarding what comes out of the DTS? What are we seeing? What do we need to change? What is working? What isn't working? Um, but there's a steering committee side that's going to look at the operational aspects, but then we have a technical side. And I'm actually going to throw that over to Lafi and let him talk about the technical aspects of what that DTS is going to provide. So on the technical side, the, the way in which the relying party trusts an MDL is when it receives the data to use the issuing authority's public key and together put them into a cryptographic process that spits out an answer that says this information was signed by this key and it hasn't been changed or no this validation wasn't successful and so the relying party has to trust that the public key of the issuing authority that it uses in that cryptographic function actually came from the issuing authority that you think it's coming from. To make that work, to operationalize that, um, the standard suggests the creation of a list of public keys that you can obtain from a central location. It's called a VICAL. It's just an acronym for this list of keys. And this central provider is called a VICAL provider. And so what it means for a relying party is instead of having to collect the public keys from all issuing authorities for whom the uh, verifying uh, the relying party wants to read MDLs, it now has to establish a relationship with only the VICAL provider. And the VICAL provider will provide the full list of keys of issuing authorities, public keys of issuing authorities that comply with the minimum requirements of that particular ecosystem. And so the DTS that AMVA is standing up is going to provide this VICAL. It's The DTS will be the VICAL provider. And so at a technical level, the DTS will make sure that the keys, the public keys it collects from issuing authorities belong to actual and valid issuing authorities, that those issuing authorities follow the minimum rules established by the uh, DTS steering committee or governance committee, if you would, which could, for example, say um, you have to follow the following rules when you administer your public-private key pairs and you have to do the following as far as your the privacy of your app is concerned. And so 
only issuing authorities that comply with those minimum rules will get their public keys into this VICAL, the list of keys maintained by the DTS, which then will be distributed to relying parties. And so in that way, we we facilitate the chain of trust between the relying parties and the issuing authorities. And when we talk about generating the, the public key, uh, again, for those that don't live and breathe this stuff, when I'm a jurisdiction and I create this, this MDL, what does it mean to generate a public key. I mean, it's I'm assuming, I don't know, it's not a physical item that you're literally providing somebody. So what, what does that mean to generate a public key and then to collect public keys? The, I think that's a very good question. Um, issuing authorities or anyone that wants to issue driver licenses would generate a key pair, a public and private key pair. And those two keys go together. They they files, basically, um, that perform cryptographic functions. The private key is used by the issuing authority to digitally sign data. In this case, it digitally signs an MDL. And it needs to protect that private key so that no one else can use it. Because the moment someone else can use it, course you can't claim that it was the issuing authority that issued it and so once the mdl is a, a, a digital signature is added to an mdl using this private key that digital signature can be authenticated cryptographically using the public key the associated public key and so when we say the issuing authority generates a key it's actually generating a key pair the public key, it wants to get out there and wants to be distributed as widely as possible. And the private key, it has to keep absolutely private so that it can sign the digital signatures on all the MDLs with that. And so the digital trust service we're standing up allows for a central hub of those keys so that the relying parties don't have to go and talk to every issuing authority on their own, but can have a central interface? I mean, is it is it that simple? Am I oversimplifying it? it, it well, in concept, it's that simple. And, and to clarify, it's the public keys of the issuing authorities that get ingested sure. into the, or by the DTS into the, the VICAL. Um, how that happens operationally is not that simple because I can't just have the issuing authority use email to send me the public key. Mm. Um, because I, I really, as the DTS operator, has to be very, very sure that the public key that I'm about to add to my key list, the VICAL, actually is the key that is the companion to the private key held by the issuing authority. So logistically and operationally, that process of getting the key from the issuing authority into um, the DTS and into the, the the master, the, the VICAL, um, needs to be very, very secure. So to, to take that a little further for what it really means to an issuing authority and a relying party, though, to use the DTS, is the issuing authority doesn't have to go out and contract with every relying party across mm -hmm. the nation to get their public keys. 
they put the public keys into the DTS. They establish the public key and get them into the DTS. And then the relying party can download those, the BICAL, the list of all the, the public keys that are available and use them for the, for the MDLs that they want to interact with. And then for the relying parties, they don't have to go, as Lafayette said, you don't have to go to each mm -hmm. issuing authority and say, I want to contract with you to get your public key. They can get it from one location. So this central location, this DTS MVP, is a way for both sides of that coin to get the public key in the hands of the relying parties so that the MDLs can proliferate and actually be used and trusted. So it increases the trust in the system and it increases the use of the MDL and the security of the data of the person using their MDL. Because remember, you're only using a piece of your data in an MDL, it's only the pieces of data you need for the transaction instead of handing over your entire physical card as you do today and they have everything that's on the card when they when you hand it to them. So it's the trust and the security of the system that all of this is provided, the DTS can provide for both sides of the of the trust service. And so we talk about the standard now being available. When will this DTS be available? Next year. So I'm, I'm saying that sort of a little bit glibly. Um, <laughs> we, we are in the process of uh, preparing uh, a request for proposal um, that will ask for vendors to submit bids for standing up Mm -hmm. and hosting the digital trust service. Amber will still be um, controlling it. Um, and the governance function is totally separate and will be handled by Amber. The, the technical part of it will be performed by a contractor. And we expect the RFP to be awarded uh, early next year. Um, and then we envision a a stand-up period of a couple of months. And so um, early second part of next year, potentially, um, is when we can have the DTS available to take on board the first public keys. So what would be your guidance to the jurisdictions that now that the standard's available want to start moving and working to create MDLs? And we know, you know some jurisdictions already are doing that including some that are partnering with very high-profile household name technology companies and large federal agencies. Uh, what would be your advice on how to bridge this in-between time for those that want to go ahead and get in the game, uh, but, you know, while they wait for the DTS to be operational? So the, <clears throat> I would, my, my advice would be to still go ahead and don't let that hold you back. Um, the DTS is about the distribution of keys. If we look at the, the household name projects that, that you have alluded to, the reader entities and the reading community that is involved initially is limited. And so for issuing authorities to get their keys to the readers at this point does not require a DTS. As soon as more reading entities come along, it's definitely going to need the DTS. So again, don't let the availability or the not yet availability of the DTS hold you up. Go ahead. And as the ecosystem grows, uh, we're confident that the DTS will pick up um, the distribution function uh, right about when it should be needed. 
So it's really about building that capability and capacity for when the ecosystem is at the scale that it's going to, to need it or be ready to go before it hits that, that uh, critical mass uh, where currently with the limited number of projects, issuers can work more directly with the relying parties because it's a finite number. But as that expands, that's where you're going to, the DTS will really solve that challenge of scale. Exactly. In, in, in addition to that, we our, the location for the standard to, to go obtain the standard is on our website. And the uh, implementation guidelines will also be there so that the, the jurisdictions can go ahead and obtain the standard, get the implementation guidelines to use in their implementations, and for those that have already implemented, can make sure that their implementations are standardized to the standard and, and they have the extra ANVA namespace inside the uh, the implementation guidelines to assure that their their regional, their North American uh, data set is adequate and accurate. So I'd go ahead and get those those two references and, and take a look at those and ensure that, that you're where you think you are in your process. And as you know, the standard reaches this uh, important milestone and the guidelines are, are following, uh, any other highlights of either of those two documents that we haven't touched on that you really want to make sure the community uh, has full full awareness of that maybe is different than what they would have expected or meets a particular need that we've heard over and over again that we haven't talked about yet? I could maybe highlight just very few key points. One is that the standard described by the ISO standard or the solution described by the ISO standard allows offline operation. So it does not require either the MDL device or the reader to be online at the point of transaction. So that's one very important point. Uh, another very important point is that the, the whole protocol between the devices are fully specified. Um, there are other um, thoughts and other initiatives um, in the industry for uh, credentials and we find that having something that fully describes the, the interaction between the two devices is not something that we have seen anywhere else. So I think it's, it's very important to, to realize that this is one of the benefits brought by the 1813-5 standard. And I would add to that in, in, in this We've mentioned it a couple of times already, but it, it should be mentioned as many as we can. Uh, the standard was built on privacy-preserving characteristics. The, the limited data set, the ability to uh, select the data you want to be able to use and provide in the transaction. The MDL holder is the one that does that. Uh, data minimization, where you use just enough data to say you're over 18 instead of giving your birth date. Uh, those are all really... Uh, pertinent issues inside the standard that we were able, we were successful in implementing. And the second thing is interoperability. It, 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 it never goes without saying that this is an interoperable standard. It was built to be interoperable so that the reader and the NBL ecosystems could communicate with each other out of the box. It comes that way. So uh, again, interoperability and privacy are two main tenets that we've been working with all along since this began way back in the uh, mid 
2000, 2010 to 12, somewhere in there. And so I know we've said it before, sure. but I just really want to reiterate the fact that these are, these are privacy saving, serving and interoperability serving tenants of this standard. And when we talk about interoperability, we're not only talking about, you know, within the U.S. and Canada, we're talking truly international interoperability that, you know, maybe we never really hit with the physical driver's license ID card. There's an opportunity here to really have international interoperability with, with an MDL standard in a different way than we've had with that physical credential. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. And so we, we yeah. have been thinking that way and we are already working with like organizations. And if I say like, it mean like, like AMVA in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are um, talking to and have been synchronizing with what's happening in Europe. There's an organization called EREG, um, sort of the AMVA equivalent there. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, there's an organization called Ostroads, um, and we have been in contact with them and working with them to try to synchronize the activities around MDL so that we don't have fragmentation and you know, it becomes a problem to have interoperability between regions. We've also been talking to the United Nations um, that has a working group specifically for road traffic and transport to try to um, use that as a platform and a means to minimize even the opportunity for fragmentation of uh, a worldwide MDL um, interoperability. So yes, it's very important to us and we certainly want to see that succeed on much more than just the regional basis. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you spending some time with us today to talk about where we have come in this major milestone of the standard and now this next journey with the Digital Trust Service. I've no doubt we will have you back again as this continues to evolve and more issuing authorities start issuing MDLs, more aligned parties are reading MDLs, um, and they become as commonplace as our current physical card in our in our wallet and in our pockets and purses. So thank you all for being here with us. Thank you all for listening to this episode this week. I want to thank, as always, our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. And until next week, everybody, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.